Hello and welcome to Bootstrap, the podcast for software bootstrappers. If you are running a software company or looking to start one, then this is the podcast for you. I'm your host, Steve McLeod. Today I'm joined by Robin Warren. Robin is the founder of Corello. Welcome, Robin. Hey, Steve. How's it going? Uh, great, thanks. It's a pleasure having you here. Let's get started by jumping straight into what Corello is. Do you have an elevator pitch prepared for us? I do not, but I reckon I can put one together. So Corello is dashboards for agile teams using Trello. So it's all your burn down charts at the simple end and cycle time and CFDs, uh, whip age, stuff like this. It's, um, data-driven agile teams are looking for, can't get with Trello, but if the team's happy using Trello, then they can um, pay me money to use that instead rather than making the team move. Okay, so pretty reports for people so they know what's going on on their Trello board. Yeah. Okay. How big is Corello? Is it just you? Is it your full-time operation? Do you have people working with you? Yeah, so it's me full-time and I've got three developers working with me at the moment. They've been with me for three coming on four months now and i had a ux agency earlier this year so that's the project this year is to kind of get it looking a bit nicer prior to that it was mostly me on my own i had one developer for a year and then had to part ways but i've since rehired him this year which has been good and this is all um freelancers um i've i've got involved basically so four of us at the moment but for most of the four and a bit years i've been doing it it's been me on my own oh congratulations on being brave enough to go up in size and it's quite a big difference isn't it going from one person to a team yeah yeah it's great i think i sort of resisted it for a while and i possibly still do i think when i started the business part of me just wanted to be me on my own in a dark room with somebody sort of posting money through the door but the reality is i'm not a a front-end developer i'm not a designer so when it came time to move from so i guess like corello the sort of position i had in the market was sort of doesn't look that great, but had more comprehensive and more sort of correctly implemented features for these sort of agile teams than my main competitor. And it was like, okay, I, I think um, there's going to be more competition coming in the Trello marketplace. And I need to look a little bit less janky and start trying to look a little bit better. And getting some actual front-end developers to do that for me was just the way to go because I didn't have the, the desire to teach myself how to do that. So Corello is about four or five years old, right? Yeah. And in that time, I think there's been a big increase in expectation of quality of user interface and design. I don't think you can get away these days with a designer's eye for de- uh, sorry, a developer's eye for design. You need to have somebody who knows what they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would say that's that's been coming for quite a while now, isn't it? I mean, sort of the I think the iPhone was sort of the turning point, just that put everyone in touch with software that was easy to use and nice to look at you know i mean people i guess have been having a bit of that before but that was the point where i think sort of consumer expectations changed and you're sort of seeing that moving i guess that's sort of moving into business software now isn't it sort of people are expecting that consumer level of quality of the interface and ease of use yeah were you doing something similar in private enterprise before like dashboard type of uh, products? Yeah. So the previous company I worked at for 11 years, we did 
it was performance management was kind of the original product for the UK public sector. So it's basically yeah, dashboards and reporting for councils and hospitals and stuff around the UK. And prior to that, I worked for a company that does data systems for newsrooms. So they get me back occasionally to work on general elections in the UK. So they don't do the swingometer. I don't know if they have that in other countries, but it's a big thing in um, UK general elections. You have the swingometer that goes from like Labour to Conservative or left or right or whatever in the, in the results. But we would generate the data that would go to the graphics guys who would um, generate the swingometer and, and such like. So I guess I've always worked in that kind of area, sort of data and then dashboarding. Uh, it's nice being able to talk about uh, something you've worked on that people have actually seen. So much of the work we do just never gets seen by the general public. Yeah, yeah, it's true, yeah. actually, because it sounds like there's a general election coming up here in the UK. My old <laughs> boss got in touch and um, I said I couldn't do it, which would be the, it'll be the <gasps> second general election I voted in, which I've not worked on, which would be oh, kind of... Wow. Interesting. So I'll be, able to be on the other side of the screen. I normally, these days, I normally get sent over to Wales because I live quite close to Wales. So I go and work at the BBC in Cardiff, which means I get to watch the Welsh language coverage all night. So I've got no clue what is going on. And if I did know what was going on, I'd still only really know what was going on in Wales because they cover that story rather than the, the, main, <laughs> the main one. So well, judging by what I've been reading in the newspapers lately, nobody has any idea what's going on in the UK. <laughs> True, yeah. Maybe better prepared than most for this level of confusion. So do you remember what dashboards looked like like 10 years ago or longer in the corporate world IT dashboards? They, I think they've come a long way, right? Yeah, there was a lot more... Um, what's skeuomorphism, wasn't it? it? Was kind of the thing back in the day. So your dashboard would actually look like a card dashboard, um, and you'd have these sort of oh, you, that sort of time of web design where everything had to look like it was sort of this big glossy piece of glass. You know, every sort of button on this sort of popping out of the screen, right? Um, or you'd have like something that actually looked like a notebook. You know, with like the spiral ring binder in it. I think one of our old competitors from my old company had something that looked like that, and me and my colleague we're laughing our asses off at it because it's just like and speedometers everywhere speedos yeah yeah i mean i wrote a speedo for my old company um and then we rewrote it a few times and it's gradually you could sort of track the iteration of that speedo that i wrote in the early years and was taken over by a guy who was better at doing stuff that looked nice in subsequent years but as it moved away from something that looked very much like a speedo to yeah something that had like echoes of speedo to it but was mostly a uh yeah, just sort of trying to do the Dover charting and the data. It's it's interesting to me. I mean, like, so some of the stuff we've been doing with the redesign recently is not just being make it look nice. It's also like looking at all of these views in the product and saying why why is someone coming in here? And as soon as you ask that question, you realise basically no one's asked that question about a lot of these charts <laughs> in like the sort of agile worlds. What they've done is they've seen what the previous guy did and then copied it. Mm-hmm. And they've never really thought about like, okay, what are we trying to tell here? There's a, there's a few people out there and it's kind of an interesting area to be in for me anyway, because there's people who are um, genuinely going out and saying like, you know, what about this other visualization might actually give you the information you need rather than just allow you to look at a chart and feel like you've done something that day, you know? So um, yeah, there's still a long way to go and a lot of people still just chuck a load of numbers and pretty things up on a, on a screen without really thinking about what the point of it is, if you know what I mean. We just assume that the previous person or the person we took inspiration from, I'm using air quotes around inspiration, uh, yeah. we assume they know more than we do about what they're doing. And actually, it's probably a big chain of people who are all just assuming the same thing about someone else. 
Yeah. Yeah. My uncle told me a joke years ago. He was a civil engineer, I think. He's not going to listen to this, so I probably won't get told off um, for getting that wrong. Um, but he said, yeah, there's, uh, why did the engineer cross the road? Because he looked it up in a book and that's what everyone else had done previously. Uh, <laughs> um, okay. yeah. um, I don't think you've got a career as a stand-up comedian yet. but <laughs> <laughs> Working on it. <laughs> something to fall back on. <laughs> so you said you're you're located somewhere near Wales. So you near a particular well-known town or in a well-known city? I am in Bristol, which is near the well-known towns of Bath and Portishead. I guess uh-huh, so people was... have probably heard of Bristol, but it's it's like a lot bigger than Bath. But everyone's heard of Bath. Uh, I just know the expression "ship shape and Bristol fashion." I don't know yep. what that means or where it comes from, but it sounds like it's got something to do with Bristol. Yeah. So I was reading this the other day on the weird Bristol Twitter account and they were saying it's for ships going up the Bristol Channel because it was such a tricky channel to navigate. You had to get everything really well balanced on the boat before you sort of head up the channel to try and um, get up to Bristol. I think then getting up to Bristol is quite tricky. You've got to go up the channel which has got one of the largest tidal ranges in the world and it's got a lot of like mud and sandbanks and then you go up the river to get into the floating harbour in the centre of Bristol. So I think if you if you fuck it up, you end up sort of parked on the side of the river somewhere. Can I swear on the podcast, by the way? <laughs> it seems you can. <laughs> <laughs> so the Bristol Channel, I may have heard about that. Is that where people actually surf as the tide comes in, like a few kilometres up and then... Yeah, you've got like a tidal bore, which I don't know if they do it in the channel, but then it sort of goes up the sort of tributaries, the rivers that go up. So uh, my dad lives in a place called Bridgewater, which is a town sort of a bit down from here. And you can go and see this tidal bore come up, which if if anyone's never seen it, it's sort of a, I guess, like a half meter high wave that just sort of travels up the river as the tide comes in. So you can sort of people hop on that and surf it. And I think they used to bring boats and things up sort of canal boats and things like that they try and sort of ride the bore up to um places like bridgewater that were inland yeah wow so bristol would be maybe two hours uh west of london yeah about that yeah yeah, yeah depending on how you travel yeah <laughs> So it's quite interesting how I think every person I've interviewed so far for this podcast lives somewhere that's not one of the mainstream like go-to places for startups. I think there's this this quiet revolution of people running profitable uh, software companies or IT companies from anywhere they want. Yeah. And it it doesn't have to be those like digital nomad hotspots in Thailand. It can be anywhere, anywhere in in the developed world. Yeah, I mean, it's what you need really, like an internet connection, and you know, that's about it, I guess. I mean, most people are have a lot of them moved as well. I listened to one or two of the podcasts so far, and one of them had moved after that. Whereas I just sort of set up where I was, and then immediately had a kid anyway, so we're sort of not about to move town <laughs> or country certainly anytime soon. But you find in that is that people are, have moved somewhere, or are they just they were living somewhere, then they started their business. Off the top of my head, I'd say it's half and half. Some people like to move. Some people see yeah. a lot of wisdom in staying where they are. And I think especially with you having young children, there's a lot of stability with uh, family and friends around that you've known for a long time that makes it easier to run your business. Yeah. And um, I mean, the area we live in is the main attraction as well because we, yeah, when me and my wife moved here, we sort of met and we sort of live around the corner from each other. 
it was like that was a lot of people in their mid-20s were moving and renting here because it was relatively affordable. And then as those people got into their mid-30s and on, they all started having kids. So everywhere that used to be all about partying and drinking is now all about babies, <laughs> baby groups. There's, you know, there's literally like cafes opened up on the street that are just, you know, sort of baby cafes basically and stuff like this. So there's a million like parent and child groups you can go to and stuff like that. So that's like one of the main attractions. It's just super easy for my wife um, when she was looking after the kids to just walk everywhere, which is great. Because I think if we were moving, we sort of would maybe consider moving out of the city a little bit to get a bit of green space. But then you kind of on your own, you know, <laughs> looking yeah, after the kids. Yeah. So sort of thing that looks nice when you're watching grand designs, but when you're actually doing it in real life, it's quite isolating. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I want to tell you why I actually asked you to be on this this podcast. There's two reasons. One is okay. because of the uh, uh, you're, you've been on our forum for quite a long time and you're active, so I knew about you. The second, though, is that I actually stumbled across a podcast interview with you from another podcast about two years ago called Britstrapped. Do you yeah, remember okay. doing that? Yes. I mean, I talk to Martin from Britstrapped every two weeks because he's in my mastermind group. So. Okay. Yeah, so I can remember that, but I can remember more conversations with mine <laughs> since then. Oh, I didn't realize you had that connection with him. So in the episode I listened to, you were accused, well, that's the wrong word. You were praised <laughs> for actually living the dream. Do you remember yeah, this conversation? Yeah, I remember. He seemed like slightly irritated almost. I don't know. <laughs> that's probably not fair to say, but happy, I guess, that I'd, I'd got there and keen that he would get there too. Yes, yeah, and that was his phrasing, wasn't it? I got yeah, all... if I recall, the dream was you had managed to give up your day job and were now working for yourself. Is that still for you living the dream or has the dream shifted? That's a good question. The dream is always evolving, I think. And I, I, it's something I honestly struggle with and I think about quite a lot is what do you want? You know, it's like, it's all well and good. You sort of create this business. I, you know, I've tried to start something like this for a long time. And I think like everyone is, you know, you're listening to the podcast and reading stuff and building stuff evenings and weekends and it's years and years and years. And eventually you get there and you're the sort of proverbial dog that's caught the car it was chasing. You know, it's like, you don't know what to do with it when you get there. Um, and there's not really a, a map for it. You know, if you want to go and get a job and work 40 hours a week and try and get a slightly better job or better paying job and so on and so on and so on, there's like a fairly well-run route that you go down there. Whereas when you're not doing that and you can choose, okay, do I pay myself more or do I keep on paying myself less and invest in growth or do I work more hours and try and grow the business or do I work less hours and spend more time with the family? It's a balance. I think it sort of changes almost month by month, year by year, you know, what the right what the right balance is. I'd say I'm still living the dream. I'm very happy to be able to have those problems of working out yeah. how I want to do stuff. For me, the, I think one of the things I realized in last year, one of the, the biggest important things for me is uh, the schedule freedom. So, mm -hmm. being able, so I started piano lessons quite early on in the business actually and being able to email someone who was a really great piano teacher who's just around the corner from me and him say, oh, I've only got one session. It's at 9.30 on Tuesday mornings. And he's like, well, I'm free at 9.30 on Tuesday mornings. That's great. <laughs> like that. um, I've got a personal trainer. I don't have to go and see him at four in the morning or anything like that. You know, I sort of get up at a relatively sensible time, see him. And I start work late on those days. Um, I pick the kids up from nursery a couple of days a week now and like, try and want to try and start getting down to pick my eldest up from school, which has just started because that's kind of fun as well. So yeah, having the freedom to do all those sort of things is... It's the key, I think. Uh, it's good that you still remember how what a privilege that is. 
yeah you've got to keep you've got to keep that focus haven't you i think what's a um i was trying to remember what it's a stoic philosophy isn't it you know you can't sort of get used to the new normal you've got to kind of keep on reminding yourself what life would be like if you didn't have all of these things that you've acquired freedoms or objects whatever they are so three or four years ago I was beginning to forget what my previous life had been like. And I took a week's consulting gig. It involved me going to Paris and it actually sounded pretty good. And it took me two hours into the first day for me to realize how much I despised <laughs> and why I was running my own business. And I swore never again. Yeah, I think I definitely don't want to go back working for companies again. I work, I mean, these sort of, contracts that I was sort of doing sometimes working on their general elections. So did we talk about that on the call or was that before the call? I can't remember. <laughs> it was on the call. It was on the call. Good. Yeah, okay. I, had to, I had to think for a little bit then. You've just revealed the uh, the secrets that we had a conversation before the <laughs> yeah. real conversation. Yeah. And this, the other secret listeners, by the way, is that I'm massively sleep deprived because my kids are not sleeping the last three weeks um, and I've caught a cold off my daughter. So I may start hallucinating and not be sure what's going on or where I am at some point. But yes. So th those are good fun because I go in, it's a, it's a sort of short project you've got like an event. It's really good fun working in sort of broadcast TV, that kind of thing. Cause there's a thing that happens and it's all seems to be chaos before that. And there's a lot of shouting and people being angry and then it's done and everyone's hugging each other and shaking hands and you've, you've achieved a thing that you set out to achieve and then it's done. You don't have to support it or anything like that. Oh. You just go, you know, so that's kind of great. And I enjoy, I enjoy doing that. And I also enjoy that because of the team there, like the, my old boss there, Richie is fantastic. And the rest of the guys on the team, um, uh, just, it's really good fun to sort of see them and have a catch up every few years. But the idea of going back to somewhere like my old company I was at, um, would, yeah, I don't know. I would do some fairly extreme things before I would go back to work <laughs> in somewhere like that, basically. Oh, don't burn any bridges on here. No. <laughs> so we still haven't actually touched on the beginning of Corello. Tell us how and why you started Corello. Yeah. Okay. So I had um, always wanted to start some kind of a software business online that made money and that would sort of break that separation of you turn up an office for eight hours and you get eight hours pay rather, you know, you could, you've got the time flexibility. You've also got the, like the two sort of aspects of that, I guess one that you can, you can make more money if the business is making more money, you can pay yourself more than a, a reasonable salary someone might pay me. Um, but also you can make no money at all if you completely mess it up. And I kind of like that um, sort of extreme of the sort of responsibility there. Um, the company I've been working at went through a redundancy process. They were kind of restructuring and um, getting ready to sell themselves. So this opportunity to take redundancy came up. I've been the CTO there, I guess, for the last few few years prior to that i was sort of head of development there's no real change in my job apart from a new title <laughs> in between those i would say but yeah, sort of relatively senior so i got a reasonable payout and um, my first kid was due that january as well so i january was when my daughter arrived i was technically off um sort of paternity leave i think that month and then i never went back after that <laughs> so they sort of gave me a little bit of extra time off on the understanding my daughter was arriving so i was off on holiday for a week or two before and then february i started work on working out what i was going to build but i did this so i started the whole thing so i did a lot of things which people say you shouldn't do um i we quit my do. job <laughs> yeah <laughs> i quit my job and i had no idea what i was going to build 
and, and uh, a newborn start. baby to, to provide uh, yeah. for. <laughs> yeah, exactly at the same time and that was I mean that was one of the most stressful times I think because every single day I was going out and I was doing the sort of things people do researching trying to find forums people who've got problems with some software I was looking for I did it I did have the idea of one in a build and add on to another product uh, which obviously Corello was an add-on to, to Trello so I was looking at a lot of products that had marketplaces and trying to sort of find gaps and find something I could build. But it was, it was a stressful time because every day, every week, you spend all this money and it doesn't feel like you've got any closer to where you need to be. I found a load of things that wouldn't work, but I hadn't found anything that would work yet. And there was no evidence that I would find anything that would work. And a few weeks into that, I went to help a friend out. So he had a, a marketing agency locally and he was thinking of hiring someone to do some... Um, build some tech and maybe have sort of a tech product out of his agency. So I sort of sat down with him and just went through a load of ideas they had and issues they had in their business and trying to help work out, you know, what could be solved with tech, what could be solved by buying tech and what was unsolvable with tech at this point and try and sort of prioritize all that. And um, one of the biggest issues he had was keeping on top of all their Trello boards. They had um, a Trello board for every client and they needed to go every week and just see if any of their freelance writers were missing deadlines or anything like that, which apparently was taking them most of an afternoon just to go through everything and double check all these cards. So then the next day I went back home and carried on with all my research trying to find something worth building. And halfway through that day, I think it took me an embarrassing amount of time. I was like, oh, hang on. I know a guy who's got a problem and it's taken him two to four hours a week of his time. He would definitely pay good money for that. So I built a prototype of, um, which it was, it was called Corello at the time, but it wasn't what Corello turned into. It was kind of targeted at agencies who are managing multiple Trello boards. That was kind of the vision. Um, and I went and demoed that to him. He said he wanted it straight away. We agreed like what would be a, a fair price for it, which was um, over the sort of $40 a month. I'd kind of set myself as a target in terms of value I was delivering. Um, and then I went away and built a prototype or built a, like a version one MVP that I could launch and try to do a bit of the customer development and get more people involved and interested then, which I struggled with and didn't really work out launched it and then kind of from there had a lot of conversations with people and discovered there was this niche of software development teams who I understood. I understood how to find them and talk to them and they absolutely would pay good money for um, the features that they were asking for. So that was kind of, yeah, the securitous route I got to the the product idea for Corello. It actually sounds like a pretty good approach. Uh, I think design agencies or marketing agencies are a great source of actual pain points. If anyone listening who wants an idea for a business, go and work for a design agency or a marketing agency for a week or two, and you'll soon see pains they're experiencing every day and you'll get product ideas. Yeah. It's just, I mean, I sort of suggested this to a few people that the way to go and find a an idea or a problem to solve is almost to go and volunteer your time, which is kind of what I was doing. But if you yeah, go to events and say to people, you know, I'm a software developer. I will give you my time free to build something. The deal is I'm not just building it for you. I want to find a product. So I want to find some other people who've got that problem. There's still a chance you can get people asking to solve problems that they don't really care about. And you still need to, mm. you know, all those caveats, but Having kind of done it once, it kind of worked out for me. I don't know if you could replicate that somewhere else, but the idea of it's sort of become a fashionable the idea of building a product to to prove the product, if you know what I mean. Everyone yeah, wants yeah. to do all their analysis up front. But the thing is, I mean, if 
I knocked out a prototype of this that, I mean, it only worked on my computer. You couldn't deploy it anywhere, but that took two days and I demoed it. And that was enough to get a very clear reaction. It was interesting. It was a week later they had it and we're actively using it every week then. Wow. A couple of other things I think you did right. You went B2B, you went SaaS, yeah. you went for a decent pricing point. You're already thinking 40 or $50 minimum. All of these things I think just make success so much easier. Yeah. Yeah. That was all sort of hard learned lessons, I think, from prior efforts to build stuff back in the sort of evenings and weekends days. And I'd sort of, by the time I came to building Corello, I had a a list of rules, which I was going through. So so all of those, yeah, I think it's $30 a month or more value was one of the ones, which partly, I think, yeah, forces you to build something that's actually useful rather than think, oh, I don't know, I only feel like I can justify $10 for this. It's like, well, it's probably not a problem then because it's probably actually worth $0. <laughs> you know, and if you feel like, okay, I can ask someone for some real money for this and you're probably yeah. solving a proper a problem. But yeah, B2B, not no marketplaces or anything like that. It was just, you know, if one person turns up and gets value, they can pay money and they don't need other people there to, to get value from it because I'd sort of try to build a job site um, well, that actually, before you, you before you mentioned the job site, that actually takes me to my next point on the list of things yeah. I wanted to ask you about. Your blog post, 57 months to $1,000 MRR. Yeah. I love this post. Uh, and I'll put it in the show notes so people can read it. Tell us a little bit how it took you five years to reach $1,000 MRR, monthly yeah. recurring revenue. Yeah. So that was, that was a fun post to write actually. And that was, I mean, in the early days, I don't know if you had this as well, we sort of, and you sort of hitting these milestones. It's really exciting because it's taken you so long to get there. And I wanted to write it down whilst it was still fresh in my mind because you forget everything and you forget the struggle and, and whatnot. Yeah. That sort of the 57 months there was kind of an arbitrary start point from when I launched my first ever product. And prior to that, I've been building things, but they'd never got to the point where I'd gone and got like a Linode server and actually worked out how to get something deployed live. So um, yeah, the first one of those was this jobs tractor site, which was, yeah, like the, the mistakes. So that was this um, jobs board. And the idea was places like um, Joel on software, I think he's removed it now and it's also part of Stack Overflow, isn't it? But he was making a lot of money, I think, from having a, a job site attached to the blog. And it was like, well, we could aggregate traffic from a lot of blogs and they could sort of share a, a, a job site. So I was going to sort of target a load of tech and developer blogs and try and, and get them working on um, this idea of having a, a backend owned by me running a job site for them and making some money off of that. And the mistakes on that one was that I had the idea, got excited about it, and then just built it for months on end. And I remember like it was a really nice summer and my girlfriend and my wife was sort of out with our friends um out in town and going on walks and stuff and i was staying inside coding 12 hours a day on the weekends and i looked back on that time and i was like that was quite a waste and it what what killed it was i found a, a similar service that had gone out of business i got in touch with a lot of the blogs that had used that and a few other blogs who might be interested who seem sort of high traffic development blogs and the ones who tried it said they didn't really make any money off it. So they were just going to stick with advertising. And if, if I'd been more confident in it, I could have maybe offered to pay them, you know, buy advertising space, but I wasn't willing to invest money at that sort of time. So maybe I could have made it work, but it, it sort of went for a few months and then it, it kind of fell apart and it could have fallen apart in the first few weeks if I'd gone and talked to people rather than building this huge stress tested <laughs> application. Um, but that site, Jobstractor, lived for quite a long time. I killed it when I started off 
on Corello because I ended up building a Twitter add-on. So basically, on a post, I'm trolling through the Twitter API looking for job posts from people. So not like from LinkedIn and stuff like that. But, you know, you see get like the local individual guy who's like, oh, I'm trying to hire a JavaScript developer for my team in Bristol or whatever. And that was that was quite good fun. I got a fairly good system that could find all of those tweets from individuals and classify where they were all around the world. And the idea was I was going to use it to work out what languages to mess around with and learn myself next. But then I realized I'd built this kind of job search engine across Twitter. <laughs> so launched that and got a lot of interest. But again, failed to turn it into any money, basically. And you had a couple more uh, things along the way, building up experience before you were actually able to earn money with Trello, uh, with Corello, right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, like a few more things and like same as everyone, you know, it's sort of different projects that they build yeah. and, and then, um, but yeah, sort of the main things that I got from those was learning those sort of rules. And I think that's like, that's something I don't see people talking about too much is no. evaluating ideas and and I think it's sort of people are maybe scared of it because they have like one idea a month and like, oh, this is great. And it's like, actually, when you start throwing more ideas out and chucking them in the bin, you st- you actually generate more ideas, I think, especially if you know why you chucked it in the bin. It's like, oh, well, that one's actually probably only worth $5 a month or it's B2C. So that's a bad idea. Then, you you know, it frees your mind up to come up with more more ideas, I think. So having that sort of framework is a good idea for people. The other problem I have with ideas is that I, as I'm working on my current project, I keep on thinking, oh, that problem I've got with, with my project, that's an idea I could spin into, off into another product. Mm. And I, I'd say once a day I get one of these ideas. Uh, and, of course, there are just distractions. You need to throw most, almost all of them out and just keep focusing on the one thing you're working on if it's working. Yeah, it's very tempting though, isn't it? And I, yeah. <laughs> I do struggle with that a little bit, I must admit. I don't know if we all just need to end up like Josh Pigford with like a million hobbies on the side to stop us from running off from the day job too it often. It helps. And you talked about uh, piano lessons and a personal trainer, and it does sound like you've got quite a good work-life balance going on. Is that how you see it or is that just how I see it looking externally? It's definitely how I see it as well. Good. Um, and that is a focus for me. So the, the business was always going to be a lifestyle business. That was that was always the intention, I think. And I'm quite happy with that as a term, which means, you know, it's still a business. You've still got to focus on the business and do a great job of that. But you can put your family and your health and things first, really. I mean, when I was working at home, so I used to, I used to work down in Taunton, which is sort of a bit of a way away. So I used to walk quite a lot every day to go and get the train. And I was yeah, probably out running and things like that. And then I started working from home on Corello and it would get to Wednesday and I realized I hadn't taken my slippers off because I hadn't left the house. So I was getting really, really unfit. And when you've got kids, you start thinking a bit more, especially little kids, you know, think, well, you know, I can't take them on walking holidays now, but maybe in 10 years time, 12 years time. Mm. And it'd be nice if I wasn't completely (laughs) shot at that point. So yeah, um, I started getting a bit concerned about my health. But yeah, making time for that has been a priority, really. At the moment, I'm kind of mostly working from home. Well, gradually changing that. But I do make an effort to get out every morning for a walk. Uh, at the moment, it's my, my daughter is a great excuse to do that. I push her in a pram around the neighborhood for, for an hour. Yeah. But it really does take some discipline to do that when you're working from home. Yes. Yeah. And especially when, I mean, it was sort of the early days of the project as well. And there's just a near infinite amount of stuff you need to get done as fast as possible to start making enough money to live on. It's hard to push yourself to prioritize going out for a swim at lunch when you could just do some more coding, which I I don't know if I was 
if it's in that same situation now, I would probably be the same and I'd probably be harming my health, but you need to sort of take at some point you need to sort of take a step back, don't you? And say, okay, the early days of like having to rush and get everything done are gone. And it's time to accept that if I don't start work till 10 today, instead of eight, hmm. that's okay. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I've, I'm actually quite at ease with the fact that I have a infinite to-do list and that it's okay if I don't get too much done. As long as I get something done every day or one or two things and I'm actually making progress, it's okay if I've got this problem and that problem that all seem to be really important. For example, I still haven't done the SCA stuff, which uh, European (laughs) listeners running bootstrap companies will know what I'm talking about. So this is a danger that sometime in the near future, our payment system will stop working. And like, I know I should do that and I will, but I'm, I'm not too stressed. Okay. Yeah. I think it's, yeah. Once you've got a more established product, it's, it's different, isn't it? So those early days I had people emailing me saying, if you had a CFD, you know, we'd be paying you $200 a month and you're like, okay, it's got to build that as fast as possible now before this guy quits on Trello or finds another solution or something, you know? So it's that kind of pre-product market fit, I guess, where it's just a race and especially pre-product market fit where you've, you haven't got funding or a big like you know, we had cash in the bank, but that was going to run out within a few months. So. Did you have a mortgage at the time? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a, a very, very British way of thinking. To uh, Everyone seems to have a mortgage when they start their businesses. And uh, <laughs> I think it just must add to the pressure. It's cheaper than renting, though. So our mortgage was, yeah, less than our previous rent in the same, living in the same area. So it helped on that front. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Hey, I think we're just about running out of time, so we should call it quits for today, even though I've only got through half the things I wanted to ask you about. <laughs> so, Robin, thanks for being on the show. Um, absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me on. We'll have to come back and catch up on the rest of the story at some point. I think that's definitely on the cards. Where can people find you if they'd like to know more about you and your company? They could travel to Bristol and find me in person, or easier might be on Twitter. I'm at Robin Warren. Yeah. Okay, I'll make sure that's in the show notes. Listeners, if you'd like to discuss more about today's topics, please go to our forum at bootstrapped.fm and join the conversation. You'll find both me and Robin there. So thanks again, Robin, and have a nice day. Cheers. And bye, everybody. That concludes this episode of Bootstrapped. You can discuss this episode and other bootstrapping topics on our forums at discuss.bootstrapped.fm. Until next episode, goodbye.